and we're back at it again. I'm Diana, and this is Time Punked. So last week, I went into women's suffrage. Um, so I went through at least a decent chunk of the story, um, talking from the Seneca Falls Women's Convention um, and how the temperance movement played a role in women's suffrage all the way up through Woodrow Wilson's presidency and the ratification of the 20th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. Well, it gave white women the right to vote. You wouldn't see black women get the right to vote until the Civil Rights Act, so with black men at the same time. Technically, black folks could vote legally. It, it's in the Constitution. It's an amendment to the Constitution. You cannot discriminate against a voter based on their race. That's why the 20th Amendment was needed. But because of Jim Crow and all of that, there needed to be a law to supersede those local laws that had things like poll taxes and literacy tests and that kind of thing. There was there was a lot of bullshit regulations to try to keep black folks from voting. So while all technicalities say that black women had the vote in 1920 with white women, uh, realistically, they wouldn't get the vote until 65 with the rest of the black population. Asian women wouldn't get the, the vote in 1920. They had to wait until the 50s. Native American women wouldn't get the right to vote until the 1970s. It's, uh, we have a long history of making sure that people stay enfranchised. The ones that we don't like, anyway. Land of the free. Anyway, one of the people that I mentioned in that episode last week was Ida B. Wells and her work in the suffrage movement, with, especially with Alice Paul. This week, I am diving in a little deeper into Ida. I want to be Ida B. Wells when I grow up. Because she was a badass, and she didn't back down. She saw what she wanted, and she took it. And she wouldn't let anybody else stand in her way. This didn't always make her liked figure. It didn't always make her very popular in certain civic organizations. But it got the job done. Ida B. Wells was born on July 16th in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Born into slavery. Her father was recently freed. He was a, a carpenter. He had apprenticed under a master carpenter and now had, had a profession and could earn financial independence uh, through this skill. Her mother was also a slave when Ida was born, and they, they were both freed once the Civil War was over and the Emancipation Proclamation was officially put into effect. One of the tragedies of Ida's life comes when she's about 16. Her family went through a yellow fever epidemic, and both of her parents died in that epidemic, um, along with the baby brother. So at 16, she is left alone with her five siblings, her five younger siblings. She's the oldest. While neighbors were willing to help, you know, to take one or two of the kids to raise them, Ida insisted that her parents would spin in their graves if, she saw, if they saw them being split up like that. So Ida decided, I am going to take care of my family. My brothers and sisters, I'm going to take care of them just the same way that my parents would. So she goes and she gets her teaching certificate. She had been in school and graduated from college at this point. Um, and by college, it's more like, more like teacher training, high school kind of college, as opposed to the, the way that we understand college today. 
So she was able to get her certification to teach in a rural school, and she started doing that. Once she realized that she could move into an urban school and make more money, she moves to Memphis, Tennessee. And so she's, again, making more money and sending it back home for her family. But at this point in time, when she's in Memphis, she starts writing for the press, writing under a pen name. Her pen name was Iola. She's writing in almost every major Black newspaper, in a lot of church journals. Pretty much any organization that had the means to put out a paper of some sort would do so. And she wrote for a ton of them. She became known as the Princess of the Press because she was writing for so many things and she was so well known. Well, her pen name was so well known. So at this point that she's writing for the newspapers, she's still teaching. And then she starts writing editorials about the black schools in the school system, how there, there aren't enough schools, how the buildings that they are housed in are falling apart and they are not good enough, that the teaching that is happening in these schools is just not adequate, is not up to par. You know, kind of like the way that we talk about urban and inner city schools today. It's almost like these problems have never really gone away. Huh. So at this point, with these editorials criticizing the school system, people are, especially the school system, are, are up in arms about these criticisms. And again, she's posting under her pen name, so nobody really knows who she is. Except that her pen name gets leaked at this point, and she is fired from her teaching position for her criticism of this, the school system. At this point, she drops her teaching career, and she goes right into journalism full-time. She ends up becoming an editor at a Memphis newspaper called Free Speech. And then she would go on to, to buy about a third of the paper. So she was basically running the paper. Editor owned part of it. This was her paper. Her editorials became quite well known at this point in time. The, the subscriptions for free speech went through the roof after she took it over. Well, all good things must come to an end. The beginning of the end started March 8, 1892, when her friend Thomas Moss and her acquaintances Calvin McDowell and Henry Stewart were dragged out of Moss's grocery and lynched. This grocery catered to the black folks of the area. It was it was independent, essentially, of the rest of, of the town and their economic system. Well, across the street from that grocery was a grocery owned by a white man. So they were direct competition. Well, the, the white guy didn't like this very much because he was losing money to, to Thomas Moss, a black man. Um, so he rounded up some of his buddies and they dragged those three men out of the grocery and they lynched them. I am not going to go into details about their lynching or any lynching, really. It is horrific stuff. There are postcards, like honest-to-God postcards that you would write on and send to your friends and family in the mail with pictures of lynchings on them uh, from this time period. I think... Every single white person who's listening to this needs to take a good long look at those pictures. Make sure you see it. Not just see the incident, see that moment frozen in time, but you see the people. You see the people who, who were tortured and who were killed. See the people who did the torturing and the killing. You need to be witness to that event, and you need to 
take responsibility isn't the right phrase. You need to acknowledge that this is part of our collective past, especially as Americans. We need to acknowledge that that was awful, that was shitty, and we need to do everything that we can now in our world to rectify that in whatever way we possibly can. Um, I will leave that to leave that decision up to you as to what that looks like. Um, and whether you go and look at these postcards, I highly recommend it. Um, again, I think every white person listening to this needs to go and look at these, these postcards. They're awful. Whew. It's, uh, it's rough to look at. So steal yourself before you, before you do that. Okay. So March 1892, these three men, friends, acquaintances of Ida B. Wells, were lynched just for the crime of trying to be financially independent and being in competition with white men. That's, that's a crime. Well, at this point, Ida is, is overcome. These are friends of hers. They had done nothing wrong. How could they have done anything wrong? All they did was run a business. Up until this point, she writes later on in one of her memoirs, she had actually, she had believed that lynchings happened to people who, you know, at least some of the charges, there was a grain of truth to them, you know, that, that on some level, they deserved that. And then with Thomas Moss and Calvin McDowell and Henry Stewart, she realized that no, that's not how this works. These, these folks are being dragged out of their homes, out of their businesses, off the street, and being tortured and murdered just for not respecting the social boundaries that white people wanted to keep in place. And this is, this is really when her career as an anti-lynching campaigner takes off. This is the point at which she becomes galvanized against this particular wave of societal crime, of racial crime. And so she starts writing about it. She starts writing editorials anonymously about it. She starts writing in her own journal about it. Uh, one of the things that she says after the lynching happens, she says, I had bought a pistol the first thing after Tom Moss was lynched because I expected some cowardly retaliation from the lynchers. I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or rat in a trap. I had already determined to sell my life as dearly as possible if attacked. I felt if I could take one lyncher with me, this would even up the score a little bit. Now, one of the reasons why she was expecting retaliation from the lynchers is because of those editorials that she was writing. One of the common accusations that you'll hear even today is that the people who were lynched, particularly the men who were lynched, were rapists. They had been they had raped white women. Now, through her research, uh, the the hundreds of men and women and children who were lynched in the 1880s, only about a third of those lynchings even had rape mentioned at all in the context of the crime. So. Already, just by a numbers game, rape being actually the thing that got someone lynched is more likely than not untrue. But then you, you have to add the societal layer here. This isn't just about a crime, a, a rape. This is also about how the races interacted in the 1880s, 1890s. You have to remember that miscegenation laws 
I am never sure how to pronounce that word, so let me hold that thought. Miscegenation laws are in effect at this point in time. Um, that means that, that people cannot marry outside of their race. White people and Black people can't get married. White people and Native American people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, can't get married. Mostly, this is uh, white people can't marry other races. They didn't usually care about other races intermarrying. This is really more about white purity. White supremacy is a hell of a drug. So any, any relationship between a black man and a white woman is already suspect. Not because there's anything untoward, not that there's anything non-consensual going on, but by its very nature, it is illegal. By a social standards, it is unthinkable that a white woman would want to be with a black man. Not because it didn't happen, but because inferiority of the black race or some, some shit like that. So if a black man and a white woman were caught together at any point in time, the easiest and safest thing for the woman to do is to claim that he had raped her. This saves her embarrassment in case she is concerned about how she's going to be viewed in society. This saves her from possible reprisal from the men in her life. It, it, it is the safest move for her to make. It is the shittiest move for her to make because as soon as she claims rape, his life is in danger. Almost never is there actually a rape to go with a lynching. It just didn't happen like that. To, to make this worse, like to, to really compound things here, white men and black women together, never a problem. White men can do no wrong. White men can seduce whatever woman they want, and it's just fine, I guess. But God forbid a black man should be involved consensually with a white woman, and that's right. So, cool. So taking on this particular myth that black men are raping white women and that's the reason that they're being lynched, Ida B. Wells writes an editorial, an anonymous editorial, that includes this statement. Nobody in this section of the community believes that old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Did you catch that? What Ida B. Wells is saying here in these two sentences is that all your claims that black men are raping women are bullshit and you know it. And uh, also your women are not nearly as paragon of innocence that you try to make them out to be. That's not how any of this works. Now, I'm going to give you one guess as to how the white men of the South reacted to this. If you guessed angrily, Congratulations, you've won a gold sticker for the day. There was an editorial in a white newspaper after this was published that quoted those two lines and then responded with, you can see that us white Southerners have been so patient with these black scoundrels and there they are insulting our women, insulting our society. Well, we're not going to take it anymore. I'm down, D. Snyder. So they, they go on to threaten the life of the author of this section. They don't know that Ida is, is the author of it. At some point, that does come out that she's the author of this editorial. And 
wouldn't you know it, a group of white guys get together and they go and they rampage through the free speech offices. You know, the newspaper that Ida's the editor for, part owner of, and they destroy everything. They just take everything apart. They had fully intended to take her and lynch her when they got there. She was lucky. You can call it luck. You can call it divine providence, whatever you want to call it. She was out of town at that point in time. She had several months before agreed to to go to New York and, and do some speaking engagements there about lynching and some other things. That accepting of those speaking engagements saved her life. Now, this is 1892, she has been exiled from her home. She can never go back to Memphis at this point. If she goes back, there is a very serious chance that she will be murdered. So she stays in New York. She stays up north. And this is the point at which she really amps up her her speaking engagements. And she's going around the states, but she she's going around the northeast. Not going anywhere else. She's not going below the Mason-Dixon line. That's dangerous for her. She's going around the northeast, talking about lynching, talking about why it's awful. She's going overseas and going to England and Ireland and talking about lynching and why it's a problem and why they should care. One of One of the things that that was said about the speaking tour is that she was walking in the footsteps of a time-honored tradition where abolitionists would go to England to appeal to the British public to shame and bludgeon the Americans into doing the right thing. So this is the mid-1890s. She has come back to the States and she settles in Chicago. Now, while she's in Chicago, she starts writing pamphlets about lynchings. She starts doing research and she finds that there have been hundreds of lynchings of men and women and children. While she's putting together all of this data, she is also taking accounts of those lynchings straight from white newspapers. So, of course, of course, white newspapers are going to talk about lynching in a very different way than black newspapers are going to talk about lynching. And, and part of her reason for doing this is it gives her some credibility. The things that she's saying are immediately backed up by reliable sources, the white newspapers of the time. But also, she says that the other reason that she uses these sources is, in her own words, out of their own mouths shall the murderers be condemned. So she's using their own speech to prove them being absolute awful human beings. Now, I know that I had mentioned that rape accusations were were the common idea of what caused lynchings. Um, she was able to prove through this this research that um, it only had it was only about a third. That being said, no matter the data, that idea was so prevalent in American society, international society, and white society that even Jane Addams, who was was a, a social activist. Um, we would probably call her a feminist by today's standards, so she didn't take that word for herself. And she's a, the founder of Hull House, which is a settlement house that helped new immigrants into the area um, and into the States to, to settle into life. She goes on to write a piece. She go, She's talking about lynching and that it's awful and we shouldn't be doing this and what a waste of human potential this is. But she doesn't debunk this idea that the lynched people brought it on themselves. She actually kind of leans into it that, you know, it seems that there may be some truth to these accusations and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, this is clearly 
a problem. And Ida writes a response to Jane Addams' article where she corrects that interpretation, you know, and she shows the data that she's collected that says, you know, this isn't this isn't true. That this idea that black men are raping white women at some kind of awful rate, and that's what what's leading to lynching, that that's not true. That's not the case. This was not a contentious argument. Actually, Jane Addams and, and Ida B. Wells were, were friends. They worked together on a lot of issues. Um, they they were part of the founding of the NAACP together. Uh, they were They worked very closely together on a lot of things. So that's pretty cool. I didn't know that until very recently. So I'm going to come back to the mid-1890s, 1895. This is when Ida B. Wells gets married and becomes Ida B. Wells Barnett, hyphenated Wells Barnett. This is super unusual at the time. She wanted to make sure that people still knew who she was, that she didn't lose any of the credit for her work, from her past work, but she's still a married woman and she wants to take her husband's name. So that hyphen is super cool. It's so funny how one little tiny piece of punctuation can be so empowering. So at this point in time, she has purchased another newspaper, The Conservator, in Chicago, where she's living from her husband, actually, before they got married. And she's running this new newspaper, and she's spending lots of time on anti-lynching. But she's also spending lots of time on other issues, things like women's suffrage. One of the ways that she fought for women's suffrage was by starting women's clubs, and specifically colored women's clubs, uh, which was the term that they used at that time. These social clubs where the Black women would come together and they would they would share and they would educate and they would talk through the social issues of the day. And some of them were, were about specific topics, but not all of them. Sometimes they would take on multiple topics. Ida B. Wells started at least three, one of which was in her own name. She helped to bring all of those clubs together in a, in a regional organization so that there could be a little bit more, well, organization. At this point, she's married. She's working with social clubs. She has her first kid in 1896, a son. And almost immediately after she gives birth, she goes out on a speaking tour. Uh, she says something along the lines of, uh, you know, I think the, I'm the only, the only nursing woman who's ever been on a speaking tour before in this country. This, this is another way that Ida is breaking down expectations, breaking down walls. Um, she is maintaining her speaking career, her activist career. And she is also a wife and a mother. And this is, this is almost unheard of at this point in time. If a woman was an activist, there's a very good chance that she was unmarried, but almost never had children. And if a woman was a mother and, and a wife, she was not active in the same way that the other big names were active, uh, you know, like Susan B. Anthony and, and Jane Addams and such. Um, so she really rides this line and is able to to have this, in, in modern terms, work-life balance that a lot of people didn't have at that time. A lot of people don't have today, to be honest. The birth of her first child really brings a new, a new perspective of herself she she writes that being a lecturer or an activist or a teacher or a mother, these are equal occupations. Each one of those things is crucial and they are they are all needed um, and they should be valued similarly. She really relishes her role as a mother. She does go on and say things like 
the women who shirk their duties in becoming a mother like are are not just depriving the world of their children but they're also depriving themselves of motherhood now that's that's a bit much this this becomes a new a new identity for her. She's not just a journalist or a teacher or a, a public speaker. She is now a mother and she takes this role very seriously. Um, she goes on to have four children altogether. And she really, again, revels in that idea, uh, in that in that role of motherhood. But she doesn't stop speaking and writing. The 19-teens were seeing her making trips out to D.C. or New York for suffrage gatherings, for national suffrage gatherings. Um, when she went to, to D.C. for the first women's suffrage parade in 1913, um, she had gone with the Illinois delegation, uh, which had tried to get her to leave their delegation and go marched with the colored women's section. And Ida threw a fit for good reason. Like, they tried to kick her out of her own state delegation when she's doing so much work to organize women in that state. Illinois is the state of Lincoln, for God's sake. How can you possibly kick out African-American women out of the delegation from the state that the guy who freed slaves comes from? Like, that's that's some cognitive dissonance there, and I don't know how they like got their heads around that one, but that is that is a hell of a a leap. But she said, you know, you can't kick me out of this delegation. I need to be here. If if I'm not here, if if I don't march with you, you will have lost all of the the black women in Illinois at this point. You need to have not just white women here. And you know, she she goes off away from the delegation at this point, and then during during some later chaos in the parade, they think she ended up kind of slipping back into the Illinois delegation after after their confrontation. Um, so she did end up marching with the Illinois delegation, which is really important. And and her women's her women's clubs, her social women's clubs, would go on to do a lot of good work organizing for women's suffrage. Bless them. They're some of the folks, some of the folks that helped us to get where we are today. Um, and they are underappreciated. After the women's suffrage amendment has gone through in 1920, she she shifts her focus. She's still talking about lynching, um, but she shifts her focus to other equality measures. She was involved in legal organizations that that helped poor folks, especially poor Black folks in in cities um, or around a particular around the the Midwest, which is where she was. In fact, one of her organizations is thought to be kind of a prototype for the NAACP, which she would be involved with founding. And so she's she's really getting involved with lots of different things, uh, lots of different community activism things. But the leaders of these organizations don't necessarily love having her around. She's, um, she's crass. She's harsh. She's, she is blunt and she is doesn't like taking orders from anybody and if she's not in charge she doesn't really want to be there and if she's in, if she's there she's going to take charge uh, so it causes a lot of issues a lot of uh, discord among the the social groups in in Chicago especially where she is uh, where she lives it ends up that she starts to feel very lonely in her activism and i know that 
this is just a this is a common emotion among activists of of any period when you are working doesn't matter if you are working within an organization or if you are working alone but there is lone it is lonely work for a lot of people but when you are working alone and people in your community are not supporting you directly it can be even more lonely she tells a story in in her autobiography about how there had been a there had been a lynching in Cairo, Illinois, and the governor of Illinois wasn't going to arraign the sheriff in the county where it happened because he didn't see any reason why he should. And that if they were going to be, if they were going to arraign the sheriff, they would have to go through the courts. And Ida was saying that, you know, somebody else will do it. I don't need to be the one to do it. You know, there's lots of people out there that can can manage this. And her son stops her and looks at her and goes, if you don't do it, who will do it? And I think that's one of the things that she really takes to heart at this point. Because I mean, she's getting tired, man. I, I get it. I'd, get, I'd be getting tired by the time that I was in my 40s, too. After a decades-long fight for equality and justice, I get it. But if she doesn't, who will? Um, I think that's a, that's a lesson that we should take in this modern world as well. A lot of folks assume that someone else will take care of it, whatever it is, whether that's picking up some trash on the side of the road or whether that's you know, filing a, a legal motion for, for justice. But if you don't, are you sure that someone else is going to? Something to think about. In 1930, Ida runs for, for a local office she ran for a seat in the Illinois Senate in 1930, and she fought really hard against her opponent, who was also um, who was a black state senator, and his name was Adelbert Roberts. She ran a really tough campaign against him, um, and she, she ends up losing to him, but she never wanted to give up that fight. She wanted to keep running for office. Unfortunately, though, within a few months of her, her political loss, she would die. She died in on March 25th. 1931 in Chicago without having published her autobiography. Um, her daughter would go on to, to do that, take the manuscript that, that Ida had written and do a little editing and get it published. Nobody really wanted to publish it. It took her until the seventies to get it published. Um, a lot of people were able to ignore Ida Wells's contributions to a lot of these social movements, including women's suffrage, until that autobiography was published, which is, is a shame. The way she talks and the way she writes is so powerful. Um, and it's not just things, it's, it's not just the things that she says, but it's the way that she says them. One of the things that I really love in some of her pamphlets she would take quotes from the the white newspapers, right? And they're talking about, you know, such and such a town sent 50 of their best men onto the ferry, etc., whatever. And so when she wrote this out in her in her pamphlet, what she wrote was such and such town sent 50 of their best question mark in parentheses men to get on this ferry. She, she specifically makes use of this really sarcastic question mark. When I first came across this, when I was reading through her pamphlets, I thought it was a typo. I thought it was um, a mistranslation or um, a mis 
mistranscription. You know, sometimes PDF files and internet files, it just kind of does that. You know, there's errors in the coding and whatever. And that's what I thought it was until later on. And I was reading some other things that that's, that's something she specifically did for people to take note of the way that those things are being worded. Are they their best men? Are those people really scoundrels? You know, she's not, she's not making an argument about it, but she is making you stop and think about it one way or the other. She was, she was an incredible writer uh, and she was an incredible activist. She is not nearly appreciated enough in our country. She is not talked about enough in our history books, in our, in our history classes. You know, something I talked about last week is that I hadn't appreciated women's suffrage movement as much as I should have before I started doing this research, because I didn't feel like it had been taught appropriately. And and that's, well, that's just a consequence of patriarchy. I have to say, I'm, I'm really appreciative of Ida B. Wells Barnett and her work. Um, the things that she wrote, the things that she did, they really helped pave a way for other women to do similar things, to to follow this road of of activism and also home life. But a lot of folks followed in her footsteps and, and would create important organizations and take on large campaigns against injustices. And she's really impressive for that. And I really appreciate her for that. I really appreciate her daughter for publishing her autobiography in the 70s. We wouldn't know nearly as much about her if it were not for her autobiography. And and several scholars who dug into that autobiography and other primary sources about her. I am I am very thankful for all of those folks. But I think that's about all I have for this week. I did start a Facebook page for Time Punked. It's facebook.com slash timepunked. My Tumblr page, timepunked.tumblr.com. You can always email me at timepunked at gmail.com. You can drop me a line on in any one of those places. If you have any questions, I'd love to hear suggestions about things that I might should cover later. If you have any suggestions at all, I would love to hear them. Thank y'all and have a good week.